Welcome to the Learning Shared Podcast. Okay, so I think we'll get started. Hello, everyone. I'm Alan Wood. I'm one of the co-founders and directors at Evidence for Learning. I'm delighted to welcome you to today's EFL Learning Shared Conference, which is on the topic of well-being. Uh, this is the last EFL Learning Shared event of the 2021 academic year. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we are recording the event and it will be published as episode number 24 of the Learning Shared podcast. Uh, now, before I introduce my co-host, Professor Carpenter, and um, our terrific lineup of presenters, I wanted to take a few minutes just to look back on some of the highlights in the Evidence for Learning, uh, Learning Shared community from the last year, and more importantly, to remind you of some of the opportunities and resources for continuing professional leadership development that we've collected and created over that time. Um, these are free resources and opportunities, and they're available now for you to access and share with colleagues. Uh, let, let's start with the networking and development meetings. I, I've put up here some of the meetings and working groups that we've hosted during this school year. With these, we've, we've really sought to bring together colleagues around common areas of interest or practice. And as you can imagine, these are a, a fabulous opportunity to network to share ideas and practice and generally learn from and with other colleagues. There are now uh, well over 500 specialist settings that are using evidence for learning and that includes schools, it's colleges, alternative provisions and, and a growing number of mainstream schools. So that's a, a phenomenal community of both schools and practitioners to tap into. These events and working groups are going to continue into next year so please get in touch if you're interested in being part of one, but also if you've got any ideas for groups or topics that we might cover next year. Uh, alongside the meetings, we launched last year the Learning Shared podcast, and that has a, a simple aim. It's, it's really to illuminate some of the wonderful practice and inspiring ideas that are being developed across the Learning Shared community. And after we publish today's episode, that'll be episode number 24. There'll be 24 episodes available for you to peruse, browse and take advantage of. I don't have time to go into details about all of the episodes, but if you visit the Learning Shared website or the EFL website at www.learningshared.org, you can access episodes and there are lectures, there are presentations and uh, roundtable discussions on a range of really useful but also very important topics. And as you can see, we've had an immense contribution from, from colleagues across the community to both the, the podcast and the episodes. I put this slide together a couple of nights ago and <laughs> I was really quite taken aback by the, the quality of presenters and contributors that we've had. Uh, and this is just since last October. We've had 43 presenters and panellists that have contributed either to a podcast or to a meeting. The meetings have been attended by more than 900 colleagues from around the UK, but also colleagues as far away as Australia and New Zealand. And the podcast itself has been downloaded and streamed more than 85 
thousand times. I'd, I'd like to take this opportunity actually to say a massive thank you to everybody that has contributed, as I say, to either one of the podcasts or, or one of the meetings. Thank you to everyone. On this slide, I've just listed some of the links and locations where you can access the audio version of Learning Shared, the podcast. It, it's available from all the usual outlets. However, as I said earlier, if you access it at the Learning Shared website, um, which is at the bottom there, or the Evidence for Learning website, you have the added advantage that the episode pages contain a number of accompanying resources. There's presentations, there's articles and papers as well to support some of the discussions that are going on within those episodes. And our goal with all of this stuff really is to give you ideas, to give you resources, discussion points, and a whole bunch of material that you can then take back to your schools or colleges for further discussion and for your own CPLD. So uh, on to today's event. I'm thrilled to introduce you to our fantastic panel of speakers. We're joined by national leaders and experts in the field of mental health and well-being, as well as brilliant school-based practitioners. And I'd like to thank our speakers in advance for their contributions today. Uh, I'd especially like to thank Tina, Dr. Tina Ray, who was actually already booked to provide a keynote presentation at the SEBDA conference today. And um, I'd like to thank Tina and SEBDA for very generously accommodating us with their arrangements so that Tina can be with us today. So thank you, Tina. Uh, the format, very straightforward. We're going to start with some presentations from our keynote speakers before turning to our colleagues from schools. As you can see, it's a comprehensive, a packed agenda, so I'm not going to hold things up any longer. And I hope you find the next two hours enlightening, thought-provoking and useful. It's always a privilege uh, and honour to share a platform with this gentleman. Uh, Professor Barry Carpenter has held, I think, every position it's possible to hold in education. He's been a teacher, a head teacher, uh, an inspector, a national director, a researcher, a scholar. And more recently, he's the Professor of Mental Health in Education at Oxford Brookes University. Barry's commitment to the profession, and I think more so to the families and children and young people that we're all ultimately doing our best to serve, is, is an absolute inspiration. And I have to say, during the last three months, that commitment has been demonstrated more than ever. It's, it's my great pleasure to introduce Professor Barry Carpenter as my co-host for today, and to kick off our keynote presentations. Barry, over to you. Thank you very much, Alan, and uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm just going to bring my um, screen up as soon as I'm given sharing, right? As Alan said, we've got a terrific program lined up for you today. You're going to hear from um, some amazing keynote speakers, uh, and they're going to raise the themes for today, and then uh, our uh, other speakers are practitioners who are then going to illuminate from school-based practice those key messages that have been raised. The very purpose of today, colleagues, uh, as you come to the end of what has been a very traumatizing academic year for any teacher, uh, is to just remind you of what the opportunities are from September, what the new statutory opportunities are that will lead to you still delivering I believe, what you feel are the important things for the children that you serve. I do want to acknowledge as we set off today that you all know, without me saying really, that none of this would happen without the dedication of Alan Wood 
who goes more than the extra mile. He goes that extra hundred miles to make sure we get these opportunities. The editing of all those podcasts is down to Alan. He spends his weekends, his evenings doing that so that we as this learning shared community, which I think is now becoming one of the powerful forces, but I know that's within a small sector, but it's actually the quality of the learning shared community, the people, the practitioners, those that come and support us. I mean, the, the keynote speakers today are all giving of their time, Laura Persler, Sharon Gray, uh, and Tina Ray, and we are deeply grateful to them for their contribution alongside our school-based colleagues. So I want to frame today and those key messages by just looking at that, how are we going to build the mental well-being of our children and young people? What are the plans what are the possibilities so that as you are hopefully resting over the summer, you can also be rest assured that, in fact, the structures you need to deliver what you passionately believe in are actually going to be there and more enhanced than they have been. You know that a lot of the impetus for the uh, Learning Share platform has actually been the recovery curriculum. Colleagues, I hate to tell you, but we're not in recovery yet. Until this pandemic is over, until the illness is either under control or has gone, probably the former, then we will not truly recover. And in this last term, you have been probably reflecting on what has happened to the children. You've been reimagining a curriculum that can truly meet the needs of your children at their point of learning need. And in these most recent weeks, when so many children have gone out of the school system, you found yourself yet again trying to rebalance your school community. At a time you were trying to rebuild the school community, it's being fractured and fragmented again by this wretched illness. And those key relationships, that reconnection that is vital, will have no effective teaching, no high-quality learning, until those relationships and that reconnection has happened and that school community is strong, coherent and cohesive once more. You've been trying to do all of that against this background of the Delta variant uh, coming to the fore. And thank goodness we are living in a country that despite all of the issues this pandemic has brought, we have this high vaccination rate. And that has to be a positive thing, if anything is positive in this current climate. I want to just remind you of the five levers from the recovery curriculum because um, Alan and I hosted uh, a, a podcast meeting last week for people to reflect on the active recovery program. Hopefully all of you now know on the Youth Sports Trust website to go to active recovery. Please, 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 can you check it out? Because your children are about to face a six-week summer holiday period. The active recovery program will continue. It is free. If you could just model for your children and their families, don't forget those siblings and grandparents who are probably going to be doing some of the childcare over the summer. Show them, send some simple instructions home, how to get onto active recovery. Then you will give your children, young people, something that can sustain their mental well-being and truly engage them. What came out powerfully last week is that, uh, as one colleague said, John White, that the active recovery, that re the recovery curriculum is not a curriculum for now. It is a curriculum for always. It is a curriculum for rebuilding and continuity and progression once our school communities are, are um, together again. And it made me go back and reflect on those five levers that my son Matthew particularly devised uh, within the recovery curriculum. 
Which school isn't about relationships? Which school isn't about community? Which school doesn't think, doesn't know, they don't know, I don't know where they've been looking, that this pandemic has, has scarred their children as learners, has withdrawn the um, confidence of many children, has, has squashed the flame of learning, and that flame of learning needs to be reignited. We're going to have to show children how to learn once more, to scaffold their teaching uh, and, and learning experiences. And still a curriculum that's transparent, that their needs can be addressed. And that's one of the things our speakers will achieve for you today, showing you how within the new statutory construct, those uh, needs as that co-construction, the voice of the child, can still be heard. And space, space to be. Um, the notion of sports sanctuaries that Vicky Wells has come up with, the um, sensory sanctuary idea that uh, school I'm working with in Northern Ireland, Riverside School, has come up with and talked about on a podcast that will be released very shortly uh, as part of the Active Recovery uh, duo of podcasts. And um, please have a look at it. Um, just some fabulous ideas. Just space in your grounds is what you can do, um, whether that be internal or external. I want to remind you of the scale of issue. Can I say, at the risk of being totally repetitive, when we talk mental health, we talk mental ill health. We really need to be focused on the well-being. A small number of children will have significant mental health needs, but I cannot imagine one child in our country who's not been damaged by this pandemic. We need to realize that we have to emotionally regulate before we can educate. And our education settings are absolutely critical to aid the recovery from trauma. We've gone from one in nine of all children having a mental health need to one in six. And that was NHS Digital July uh, 2020. We've gone through two more lockdowns since then. I've been talking to my counterpart in the NHS, Professor Chitabizan, and she is minded too that that figure is probably not accurate anymore, but it's the one we're going to have to work with. Um, and for our children with SEN, we're still waiting for a drill down on the true impact on them. We knew that three in five had a mental health need before the pandemic. That's three in five children with SEN on any school's special needs register. It is certainly more. And again, Professor Jitsubis and I think it's probably at least four in five um, for some children with special needs. Being put out of school, they did not comprehend. They thought you were rejecting them. Um, those relationships have been fractured and fragmented. And I wonder what space we've given in our schools to heal. We have some weeks left. Let's focus on healing. Nobody's going to come and inspect us. The catching up is about the reparation of the relationships that have been so, so damaged, fraught, fragmented by this pandemic. And our students with autism particularly, who are always vulnerable in their adolescence to mental health needs, uh, are showing particular signs uh, of eating disorders and high levels of, of distress in this pandemic. I know that Laura Purser particularly today will focus on, on trauma, and some of you may have already seen uh, some of Laura's writing. It's been my pleasure to publish three of her articles, um, and her work on, on parenting in the pandemic has been widely used, not only in this country. I know colleagues in New Zealand and Australia that have used that work. I want to share with you a book that's really having a powerful influence in education at the moment, uh, a book by Vessel van der Klok, uh, about facing trauma, and he, he talks about the body keeps the score. And you know if you've been through any trauma, if you've been through, as most of you know, I have been through in recent weeks the most horrendous grief, um, certainly your body shows, 
shows what is actually happening to you mentally and emotionally. Trauma, by definition, is unbearable and intolerable. It leaves traces on our minds and emotions, on our capacity for joy and happiness, and even on our biology and immune systems. And certainly my immune system completely broke down following my wife's funeral. So I, I empathize with this, but all the time I'm looking at this and thinking, how does that translate to children? What are you seeing in children? Lots of schools are saying children are back and they're in, they're, they're in classrooms, but the, the intrinsic motivation is not there. The, the true authentic engagement is not there. What traces is this left on our minds and emotions? And the insights I know Sharon and Tina and, and Laura will give you will be very rich this morning. And our colleagues from schools will illuminate that in their, in their rich practice. Because we now have vulnerable children and they're fragile learners. It doesn't matter whether our children come back with diagnosis of self-harm, of eating disorder, whatever. All the time, your question has to be, and how does this affect the child as a learner? What's happening in that brain? And how will it affect their capacity to be a learner? That's our job. We're not medics. We're not diagnosticians. We're teachers. Our job is to teach children who come to school to learn. But their learning will be fragile. Pathways that you previously had at your disposal will not be there. Many brains will have been wired differently because of the trauma of this pandemic. Children will come back with a spiky profile. If you've listened to some of the podcasts on engagement, I talk about this more there. But it seems to me, children, you've done a really good job with some of that online learning. But children have come back to school with a range of jigsaw pieces that aren't interconnected because that interconnection would often happen in the dynamic context of your classroom. And they haven't had that. So they're, they're clutching all the pieces of learning but some of them don't know what to do with it. It doesn't interconnect to any, anything else. And probably this term, you're unraveling some of that. But it's a good way to think of a spiky profile. And you know that conceptually, that's, that's something that came out of the national work on complex learning difficulties and disabilities. Let me remind you that within the education health care plans, that those of you, um, a lot of you will have for your children, the whole thing about social, emotional, mental health, that's one of the four strands. With the implementation of the Rochford Review from this September, social, emotional, mental health, alongside those other three domains, become the curriculum framework, the curriculum driver for children that have an EHCP. This will be your major curriculum accountability model. It will no longer just be an administrative tool. It will be a curriculum driver. So, in fact, your capacity to keep those things you now feel are essential for your children's emotional well-being mental well-being, you, you can achieve them. And just remind yourself of the, um, the definition in, in the DFE-DOH document from 2015 on the Code of Practice. They talk about anxiety, depression. Self-harming has increased fivefold. Eating disorders has increased fivefold in this pandemic. So if those of you working in mainstream with children with SBND, if those are issues you are facing now, then this whilst it's, it's for children with the HCPs, it will also inform any child on the school's SEND register. If you set targets within that, it is perfectly legitimate. And remember that the legal powers of the 2015 Code of Practice supersede any national curriculum requirement. We need bold teachers who will look inspectors in the eye and tell them this. You are the advocates for the children, not the disciples of Ofsted.
I want to go to relationships, health and sex education. I'm delighted that Tom Thatcher is joining us today because the DfE um, uh, have been very keen that they extended RSHE to children and young people with SEND. And after I'd launched the uh, RSHE curriculum for DfE on 7th of July last year, they then, following some conversations, decided to go about an, uh, an SEND trial. And Tom's school, St. Hughes, was one of the schools that trialed that. So it's, you're going to hear firsthand from someone who's got that experience. This also, can I remind you, from this September, RSHE is statutory. Therefore, Ofsted will inspect it. It needs to be the heart of the curriculum. Literacy and numeracy are the core, but this is the heart. It will help us rebuild that emotional resilience our children so need and give them back hope. I've just taken a couple of elements, and no Tom will do more on this, but that phrase I'm using of mental well-being, I think is now a better phrase to use than mental health. Mental health smacks too much of health, and we are educationists. Whilst we're working in that domain, we need to be focused on the well-being. And look at this, respectful relationships, etc. Key things that we would want, and um, you've now got the DfE guidance on that. And if you break it down further, look at the the things that you can do, sleep problems. We know we've got evidence from studies in the USA now about the deterioration of sleep in children during this pandemic period. Lots of autistic children have lost their self-care and hygiene routines. It's there. You need to just write the schemes of work to go that. If you want to teach sleep or you're working on interventions for children who've got sleep, you have legal permission. The RSHE curriculum, but also if the child has an EHCP, you target it within the EHCP. You can protect those children's needs. Don't forget also that engagement comes in. So, you know, there's a lot of debate about how we're going to assess RSHE or the mental well-being area because it's not like assessing literacy and numeracy. And I would suggest you assess it through the engagement model, which is about students not engaged in subject-specific learning. Can we stuff this concept that it's only for children that were formerly P1 to 4? It is not. It's about students not engaged in subject-specific learning. We need to liberate our thinking a little bit. We will embrace a much wider group of learners then. And we need to look at where our children are at with their engagement. Many are now disengaged. So we're on this quest of re-engaging our children through a range of interventions around well-being, around social skills, um, and whatever. And I know Tina and, and Sharon will give you some really good insights today on some of those approaches, uh, as will some of our practitioners. So if you want to follow that up, the main podcast to go to would be the one on engagement, what you really need to know, which looks at engagement as pedagogy, not just the statutory requirement of, of Rochford. Um, but also, there are now four uh, podcasts in that sort of engagement sequence with, with meeting debates recorded and also an excellent practitioner example from Alex Reavens, um, really powerful classroom practice uh, shared with you. You see, if children see no relevance in the curriculum at the moment, they'll reject it and their issues will be compounded and their needs will go unmet, more than ever. In our profession, we need compassion, kindness, and creativity. We need bold teachers, you. We need nimble leadership and a belief that education is the key. We can bring resolution to many of the issues our children are facing through the power of our education, through our capacity for heartfelt education that will embrace that child as an active learner. When I was in China a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, um, there was a saying I saw that really impressed me. 
When the winds of change blow, some people build walls and others build windmills. I've given you two, three statutory requirements, two of which are implemented from this September. My goodness, the winds of change are going, are blowing. What are you going to build? Walls or windmills? Thank you for listening. It's my pleasure now to introduce the first of our keynote speakers, who is Laura Purser. Uh, Laura Purser joins us from uh, University of Buckingham, where she leads on a variety uh, of things from early years through primary, uh, but is particularly the National Senko Award lead at the University of Buckingham. Uh, Laura herself has a background of SEND in mainstream settings and has a particular interest in, in trauma uh, and self-efficacy, and that's the theme of her contribution today. Laura, welcome to our conference. Thank you so much, Barry, for that. Um, and I think a lot of what I'll talk about will echo some of those fantastic things you already brought up. So I'm going to be talking to you about trauma and in particular self-efficacy and the development of a child's sense of self, of which we are very likely to be aware of self-esteem, but maybe not so much how to develop and cultivate efficacy. Um, and so we're going to dig into that a little bit today. Um, so the question that I'm allowing myself to ponder and reflect upon, in particular, I'm doing my EDD, I'm in my second year, and this is where uh, my research has taken me. If anyone is doing any academic scholarship out there, you'll know that that question will adapt and change as time goes on. Um, but uh, really to echo what Barry was saying about the idea of a rebuilding recovery um, situation and context that we're in, as teachers, as educators, as there's many different roles out there, um, that you're going to have this first-hand experience with children in front of you, we need to be aware of how we sit within that. So I think it's really important for us to ponder the role of education and what it now plays for us, and in particular, how your identity and your values sit within that. And are there any discrepancies or sort of conflicts that you're feeling in terms of what you might be given in terms of guidance from a political or a governmental place and with the values that you hold? And I think what's wonderful to hear is this message of hope that there are statutory uh, requirements coming in now that can perhaps join and shine that spotlight on the mental well-being of the children that we want to work with um, and perhaps it's this reframing of that narrative that is out there at the moment of that lost learning and perhaps it's more about recovery of self and sparking and engaging learning so I think what's really important here and you've already kind of done this for me Barry, which is fantastic is that mental health in itself maybe isn't as useful a term as we might want to look at because it has connotations of mental illness or disorders or a more pathological uh, model it's kind of grounded in sort of weakness and deficit and I'd like to sort of come at this from a more strengths-based and um, uh, agents providing agency and giving a sense of control over well-being and this is really coming from an interpersonal neurobiological perspective which that might sound quite fancy but really it's taking science psychology and education and, and bringing it together and it's looking in terms of trauma at developmentally how these implications can um, inform how we will practice so I like to steal or borrow these fantastic uh, disciplines that are out there with fantastic practice that we can perhaps use and uh, inform our practice. And I'm not suggesting for a second that educators now need to go and train as therapists in any way. But there are things that we can do that might be quite intuitive 
that are therapeutic in their nature. Um, and I'd suggest that you're going to be presented with these children who, who are coming to you with varied responses and there may be trauma or other areas of emotional need. And you've kind of, you're at the, the front to deal with this. So wouldn't it be nice if you had those confidences, the efficacy and the tools so that you can effectively work with the child while we're waiting for those huge waiting lists uh, and we're waiting for the, the demand from the services to come into place. So I'm hoping that I'll be able to give you some examples of what you might be able to do. And remember that an interaction is actually an intervention in itself and that can be valuable in its own right. So you've you've helped with this fantastically, Barry, about talking and what trauma is. Um, I think when it comes to uh, giving the resources for Alan, I will drop in a, a couple of definitions of the different terms that might support the discussion we're having today. But what you really need to hold in mind when we think of trauma, although different people think of it in different ways, education, the world, yourself might have its own definition of it. Um, think of it in terms of simply an event that has happened that is distressing or disturbing that has a negative impact. It's intolerable and it's emotions that you would find very hard to process. With big T capital trauma, um, there is also other substrands of that. So we're going to look a little bit at complex trauma, PTSD, and things that happen perhaps in early childhood in terms of examples like neglect, relationship, uh, abuse, emotional abuse. And unfortunately, children are going to be, um, they're going to have high rates of vulnerability towards this because of, of the context situation we've, we've all been in. But this has happened over time for many, many years. And when you look at the research, it's much more common than we would think. But I don't want this to be a gloomy message because there is hope out there in terms of what you can do to support the children who may have experienced or continue to experience this. Please feel free to look at the uh, UK Trauma Council, which has fantastic resources. And another one that I refer you to, Anna Freud Centre, which has some brilliant, I've used it a lot to sort of ground my research, lots of resources for education and schools. So another term for complex trauma might be, you may have heard of the ACEs study um, and adverse childhood experiences, sometimes discussed as toxic stress. Um, and children present in a myriad of ways, various ways, all children are different. And in terms of the way they perceive a stimulus that's identified as trauma and how they process and cope with that will be very different depending on their own individual makeup, traits, um, experiences in life, etc. But in your classrooms or in your schools, you will probably see some of these sort of things manifesting. So you might notice children who struggle to pay attention, who struggle with their learning, who um, might live in a fight or flight freeze um, mode, which is a threat response. They're feeling that things are dangerous around them at all times. They might be particularly distrusting of adults. Um, and so you need to be aware of how am I going to approach and perhaps think about the, um, the way that I'm going to think about the behaviour policy in my school or how am I going to put this, how am I going to square this with myself so that I am working from a trauma-informed perspective in order to support a child's learning but also manage the um, intolerable emotions and dysregulation that's happening with them. Something that um, was brought up on a previous uh, CPD, I've done a lot of online CPD, um, and they were talking about, actually, it's quite tricky to see the differences um, in presentation between trauma and some neurodevelopmental issues. So sometimes ASD can present itself in similar ways, 
But there is a, a really useful grid that I've been looking at, the Coventry grids, which again, I can add to the resources, um, which suggests that there might be specific nuanced differences you can look for so you can identify whether they are actually struggling with trauma and um, ways that you might be able to support them in that. So I mentioned the ACE study, and this is the very huge study done way back when um, and applies even now. And I think it needs to be kind of elevated in how much we know about it. It's the largest study ever done over lifespan. And what it looked at was if um, a person scored highly on ACE scores or whatever their score was, and this is an inventory and a questionnaire where they were able to consider how many adverse experiences they had encountered in childhood, um, their number on that ACE score would significantly predict whether they would have issues with mental health, uh, social status, and in particular, linked to health outcomes. So now we're seeing a really clear message where the mind and the mental well-being is impacting the body and the physiology. And so these, this is really clear in the findings. And what was interesting is that trauma happens in clusters. It's, it's never really in isolation. As you start to move up your A scores, one, two, three, the percentage of the prevalence of that will also come up. So it's a good indicator to look at. And now we think about, um, I want to consider how we use this in a classroom situation. And interestingly enough, it was a very strong predictor after SEND. And obviously, this is quite an interesting uh, finding I found because it said low academic success. And as we know, not always measured in terms of successes with children, that would be perhaps a, a limited or restricted view. Um, but with the Engage model and with EFL, maybe we'll be able to, to look at a more accurate picture of success. But looking at the traditional methods, um, it was a strong predictor. And also linked to um, health status and achievement more than income. So where we have been focusing in on pupil premiums um, and looking at the economic deprivation, of course, plays a big role as a predictor, but ACEs was even more related. And then I tried to look and see what the new research was out there. And actually, I will talk about Steve, um, Stephen Porges in a moment, but brand new research, given the context of the pandemic, this really highlights the interplay between the biology and the brain and found that the strongest predictor was our nervous system dysregulation and not always the ACE scores. Now, I don't think that that mutes or voids that ACEs is, is, has a high level of predictor. I think for me, it kind of pieces the jigsaw together that they work with each other. Something is happening to our nervous systems that are being affected and being influenced by trauma and ACEs that occur. So um, you've already mentioned this, Barry, thank you for that, about The Body Keeps the Score. If I was going to recommend one big book for you to look at when it comes to trauma, it would be this book. Uh, I listen to it through my audio quite regularly when I'm, um, I've got a little baby, so I'm pushing the pram and I'll be listening to this, uh, trying to make notes as I go along. Um, but it's looking at how the brain and the embodied brain, so how the brain and the body work together and the wiring of that. So as teachers and educators and senkos and whatever your role, we have this amazing opportunity to think about our brain in terms of neuroplasticity. So it's something that isn't set in stone. This is where the hope comes in, that it can be rewired. It can be um, something that can be 
um, disconfirming experiences where children have set their mind that this is the only way that life is going to be. And actually, we are able to uh, push back a little bit against that and reset the firing. Um, I'll quote for you Dan Siegel, who talks about uh, mindsight and talks about the brain. He uses what fires together, wires together. And so if we can get the firing to uh, to work in a child's brain to expect um good relationship building and connection, we can actually undo some of the damages of the trauma that may be instilled. Um, and so there is hope and there is lots of different uh, different uh, ex- sort of techniques out there that we could use. So mindfulness is one that's talked about. Um, yoga and particularly things with rhythmic um, um, music and drumming and things with rhythmic can actually really help support what goes on within the body. What's really important, I think, as a highlighted message is the coherence of our stories. So as human beings, we are biased towards trying to make sense of this world. Um, And even if we look at the night sky and we look at the stars, we say, you know, we see a saucepan. You know, we try to make sense of it. And for children and adults, when trauma occurs, sometimes it's hard to, to piece together and make sense of that world. And that can influence significantly our well-being. So making sense of this and the stories of those children, they will come to you as educators and say, how can I make sense of this world, this messy world? And something that really helps um, is to really put it in place of understanding memory. So there's two in particular when it comes to trauma that I would like to highlight for you. Talking about implicit memory. So implicit memory and I like to think of a story, if I mentioned I have my, my own little 10-month-old baby, um, and he is right now encoding his memories, but not the way that we might think of it. He's not going to remember, you know, how I played with him in that instance. But what he will remember, hopefully, is the embodied feeling of safety. So it is being implicitly encoded into the memory of of the way that the caregiver, how I would look into his eyes, and he actually develops his sense of self based on how I look at him. So he'll decide whether he's lovable, whether he is worthy, whether he has a sense of place in this world based on that attachment. And that implicit memory is something we can work with um, and understand if there are issues in the early childhood, like ACE studies, how we can actually unpick that. And what we can do is move towards an explicit thinking. So explicit memory is autobiographical. So the idea that we remember something. So if I say to you, can you remember what you did for your birthday this year? You'll probably say no, because it was locked down. I was doing the same thing. But if maybe if we go back and think of a particular instance that highlights that's explicit memory. So when we look at trauma and how it can really be impacted in terms of development of self, we really need to start to unpick how this constructs how we see reality. And there are huge differences, as I said, between esteem and efficacy esteem being how much you like yourself and it holds a really good place it's a great starting point I've delivered many lectures talking about how to build that into circle time or PSHE but perhaps we're kind of getting distracted by it and we need to use it to inform even further a sense of efficacy which is the belief that you have the tools to succeed in a goal and that's what we really want our children uh, to cultivate for the children how we can nurture this to support intrinsic motivation. And what's really fantastic about self-efficacy is it is um, it can be used as a protective buffer. 
So if you are someone who has experienced ACEs or trauma, but you have higher levels of self-efficacy, you're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. You're more likely to move towards the growth element. So something we can really put in. And as you have noticed, I've talked about caregivers, and this, this is really grounded in attachment theory. And very briefly, just want to highlight to you that we're developing earned security for our children if they haven't so got that in place. And when they're unable to have this coherent sense of who they are, they can become quite disorganized. So if you move towards a caregiver who is also a source of fear when you really want comfort and safety, you try a baby will try every which way, a child will try strategies to survive, um, to be coherent, and it's just not there. And so this will exacerbate trauma and make them more vulnerable to these situations. Um, Could you begin to wind up, Laura, please? Absolutely. Um, so this can impact on many, many different ways. And as I said, you've got the, the slides here you can refer to. So I just want to leave you with um, a bit of an overview about the wonderfulness of what is out there. So you've got mental health first aiders and you've got mental health leads and you've got trauma-informed schools and there's great work being done. But I want to go a little bit further and say it can be quite scattered, this best practice, but to make it a more uniform, a more structured approach, perhaps we need to consider how this can be implemented in terms of initial teacher training and how the curriculum can really use this to inform practice. And then with you guys in schools and your CPD training, how you can weave that systemically through leadership um, and then at a governmental level, how it can inform policies. So really it's a calling to you to really be aware of how you can support emotional well-being in terms of safety, in terms of emotional regulation, calming yourself to calm the child and how you can bring that together to really inform your practice. Thank you. Thank you. Laura, that was an extraordinarily powerful presentation. Thank you so much. And it's, I know you've taken time actually out of maternity leave to do this for us and we're very, very grateful indeed. It's well, welcome to you to this community. And uh, I know from text and Alan just we're going to be wanting to follow up further with you because I think there's much deeper stuff we can go to here and many of our schools would want to either explore or illuminate many of the key points you made. So thank you. We're going to move on now to our next presenter. It's really good to welcome back uh, Sharon Gray OBE. Many of you will remember that Sharon was one of the contributors to the very early podcast, particularly when we were debating um, the recovery curriculum. And Sharon has an extensive experience as a head teacher in both mainstream and specialist settings. Uh, she still works nationally with uh, Engage in Their Future, one of the leading organizations around SEMH, uh, has a background as an inspector and is doing some fantastic strategic work, uh, helping local authorities listen to some of the messages that we're hearing about today. Sharon, welcome again and over to you. Thank you very much, um, Professor Carpenter. Great to be alongside. And, and thank you, Laura, um, for sharing. Um, really great to sort of scaffold through the experience because very much, Laura and Professor Carpenter, my presentation today builds upon that that's gone before. And it's about how we facilitate environments for thinking and learning, not just for our children, but also for the adults with whom we're working, knowing that a dysregulated adult does not, dysregu does not regulate a dysregulated child 
And as Professor Barry Carpenter has repeatedly stated, we know dysregulated children are not learners. And so for me, what I draw upon, much like yourself, Laura, is that neuroscience of learning and the biology of stress. How can we use that science to really inform what we're doing now to support our young people, our staff, our parents, carers, and the wider community? And it, it, a, few, a few weeks back, I was starting to reflect upon the ancient pillars of almost traditional um, healing around emotional well-being, mental health, and uh, reading a lot of work from Dan Hughes and um, looking at how in, in ancient times, the connection to clan and the natural world was what was seen to be what really glued together the emotional health and well-being of communities. And again, Laura, you mentioned that sort of element about regulation through rhythm and dance and drumming and that sort of being together in ritual. Also, that sharing of a set of beliefs, that more sort of cognitive approach that we were talking about, facilitating a narrative about our experience. And of course, occasionally the use of um, hallucinogenics, for example. And this kind of reminded me of the best practice that we're seeing in terms of facilitating mental well-being. However, it also made me reflect how in many settings and many systems, we've become almost over-reliant on the third and fourth. The fourth on the medical model and the third in terms of that restorative practice where there is an absolute place for and that cognitive element and it really kind of led me into what about the stress regulation system, the autonomic nervous system? As you mentioned, Bessel van der Kolk talks about trauma isn't in the event itself. It stays in the nervous system, much like um, Bessel van der Kolk said. So as a result of exploring that and extending the window of tolerance and, and sort of almost strengthening and creating a more robust stress regulation system within ourselves, coming therefore from a place of self-awareness, as opposed from potential unconscious self-defensive mechanisms, we can extend the window of tolerance for all of our stakeholders. And as a result, come out as a, as a more resilient individual, almost post-traumatic wisdom, because what we know from the ACEs study, absolutely the impact of toxic stress, but the missing part of that ACE study was about that buffering element of connection to clan and the natural world and the significant impact of the relationship alongside our ability to reach in and co-regulate to support each other. So my key philosophy really is about, it's again an old proverb, it takes a village to raise a child and how we facilitate connectivity almost metaphorically linking to relationships in the wider community. But also we know when a baby is born, your little beautiful baby, Laura, when, when he was born, he was born with lots of neurons dingle dangling down. And absolutely, those, those neurons make neuronal um, connections as a result of the experiences and the relationships that he experiences. The brain is absolutely fantastic in the sense that it's neuroplastic. It will adapt and develop in line with the environment that's facilitated for them through relationships and experiences. And so if a child has sufficiently good enough relationships, secure care, a sense of loving, then of course the brain will adapt to that. If they don't, for whatever reason, 
And it could be we put a non-judgmental approach here, but a safeguarding cap on. Over the last year, capacities have reduced significantly to be able to give that highly attuning, validating care. So how do we increase capacities as much as we possibly can? How can we create physically and even as important, more important, psychologically safe environments where we can step into a place and sense that element of safety. And from that secure base, really enable our children and our adults to be able to flourish and thrive. So I, I um, Barry mentioned um, my position with Engage in Their Future, a national and now international association in supporting schools and educational settings who are supporting children with social and mental health difficulties, and more recently to support many of our mainstream settings in looking at how we can utilize the expertise from this phenomenal group of strategists, school leaders, teachers, staff, to be able to really put as we've said, the RHSE at the heart of all curriculum endeavour. And very lucky to be working, one, with Barry, but also Richard Boyle as part of Engage in Their Future, to develop almost an audit that's available to members of Engage and to others to have a look at, to really see um, a, a way that perhaps we can interweave RHSE into everything that we do. We talk about the curriculum, the core curriculum, the enriched curriculum, the ethos and the culture of the school. And so this, this audit is very much available for schools just to have um, and maybe a set of questions to help to really think about how are we facilitating that reconnection, reconnection for children, reconnection for adults across the wider community, and how can we really look into ensuring that statutory requirement, not because it's a statutory requirement, because we know wholeheartedly putting the well-being, the emotional well-being of all our stakeholders at the heart of all we do is the thing that will create the best possible outcomes, both academically in terms of attainment and achievement, but also, also in terms of longevity of opportunity for our children. And it's backed up again and again and again. This is the Education Endowment Foundation. I'm going to whiz through this because you can access it. All of the evidence here is that the relational interventions, the relational support is what facilitates the best outcomes at the lowest cost. Because, of course, we've got our adults there and we have all of the capacity, if we can support our adults, to be in that sort of relational approach with our children where every interaction is an intervention, then we can make that huge difference. And again, Mark Rowland, who, who really is a... a um, uh, national lead for pupil premium aligns with with this theory as does Daniel Willingham absolutely it's about how we're facilitating a space to for people to have that sense of safety. We call it a neuroception of safety. We sort of feel it almost. You know, you walk into a room and you sense that there's been an argument. Your neuroception picks this up. We are 80% incoming sensory information into the brain. So we need to reduce risk, risk assessments, maybe remove sharp knives, all of those kind of things. But how do we send out cues of safety and become almost amygdala whisperers, those little amygdalas that are looking out for potential threat in the environment and those cues of safety. 
And this is where, um, where after doing the audit and myself in terms of my own practice, I came across an approach that I would absolutely recommend. And it's great to have Alison Wheeler, who's going to talk a little bit more about this approach, because this is the Thrive approach. And again, you can um, have a, a little look at the website here. There's a number of free awareness sessions, a huge amount of resources available free of charge in the, the Facebook page, Weathering the Storm, particularly fantastic for over the summer period. If you're wanting to send sort of almost relational support strategies home that are accessible for some of our children to do. And interestingly, again, this aligns very much with what Nora was saying. Within the Thrive approach, it's a whole school approach, we, we identify developmentally the right time support in terms of social and emotional well-being. But we also identify where perhaps at the developmental stage where there's been insufficient good enough care for whatever reason, postnatal depression um, and the birth of another sibling, any of those can impact on a child's development. And so then we identify at what stage in the development may a child have experienced some of these ACEs, adversity, or some of what we call in Thrive interruptions. And what you'll see in this Jenga block, it sort of aligns to McLean's triune brain, very simplistic, but very accessible. And that the children, in my experience, have loved learning about this. And what you'll see on my slide is each, there's this color coding for the different developmental stages. And within Thrive, each of those developmental stages carry three developmental tasks, but it's the adult's role to support the child to achieve. Laura adhered to not in those very earliest months when that reptilian brain is coming online, all about the autonomic nervous system, reptilian response, fight, flight, freeze, the role of the adult in this being stage at Thrive is to facilitate a sense of safety. Now, baby at this stage isn't in cognition, but actually, so we'll never remember the lovely gaze of Laura's world of the face, looking in and that sense of feeling. They will cognitively never remember, but their body will never forget. And this is what we're talking about. Trauma is in the nervous system. When we're looking at Thrive, we're looking at those first three developmental stages within the first three years of life. And if there's been interruptions, ACEs, adversity there, then we need to think about very different potential interventions, solutions, and strategies to support. So within Thrive, the physiological regulation, really important. And that, that stage in terms of right time development, the role of the adult is as a co-regulator. And then we go into the limbic brain and you know, we'll, you could go so much into more detail than this. And the role of the adult is a co-adventurer. And then in the cortex, the thinking brain, the adult is a co-constructor of meaning. So how that, that adult is taking up that role and whether the child has given sufficiently good enough experiences within the relationships to then make the neuronal pathways in the brain and repeated experiences in repeated um, um, relationships create myelinated pathways in the brain, almost like a, a plastic covering the electrical wire. It's a go-to, almost habitual response. Great if in those first three years, the, the environment and the relationships have been sufficiently positive. Not quite so good as then we move, in, move into what we call that green stage, which is power and identity at key stage one, key stage two, skills and structure, and key stage three, four, and five, adolescence. So within Thrive, what we can do is identify 
if there is an interruption, particularly in those first three years. And then to think about if a child has an interruption in terms of that period where they potentially developed the ability to physiologically regulate themselves, then the strategy we need to teach isn't going to be a cognitive strategy because in those moments, they're dysregulated. They're not in cognition. So we need to think carefully about how we support them to almost develop a more robust stress regulation system. And so really, really helpful for those children who need that reparative support. But equally, in terms of the RHSE curriculum, fantastic in terms of what is right time development and support at key stage one, two, three, four, and five, and how we embed that across the curriculum. The assessments that you can facilitate here, not just identify the starting points for some of those children, but also the progress that can be made. And for some of these children, for example, the child in the top left, who, who academically and chronologically was in year six, some of his initial needs were at that early strand. And so for him, sitting still, he was so agitated, discharge behavior, we needed to really focus on that as his curriculum before we then put him into a maths or English session. And we had the evidence as to why we were co-creating his curriculum for him, working with his family and his parents and, um, and wider community, as it were. And again, tracking that progress over time, really, really quite useful when you're informing as to what provision is available for each child. Because of course, as Laura said, this all links into an understanding about the stress regulation system. And again, looking into the neuroscience of learning the biology of stress, in my experience working with the adults in the settings with whom I'm working, it's, it's that that's made a real difference. How we manage to kind of drive our body cars when we're uh, in a situation of fear and anxiety, we slam unconsciously, automatically, autonomically our foot down on that accelerator to get the heck out of its situation. But if we're not managing and regulating our body cars, that foot on the accelerator we're likely to have a significant crash. Then we look at the other side, the sort of parasympathetic nervous system and how we manage to regulate ourselves. So how do we teach that, not just to our children, not just to our staff teams, but to leaders as well in terms of coming from that regulated place? Because if we're dysregulated, we're not in social engagement and we're not in our cognitional thinking. So the impact of stress and anxiety on learning is significant. I go back to my days of teaching and indeed leadership, and some of the children weren't making progress in reading or writing. So what we used to do, we'd give reading, extra reading and extra writing, and they still wouldn't be making progress, and they would still have meltdowns or explosions. And why? Because we weren't identifying the underlying cause. We were trying to put sticky plasters on the academic achievement, but for these children, they had interruptions that needed to be supported in terms of their ability around a vagal tone. Stephen Porges' work about the development of vagal tone and ability to self-regulate. Extend the window of tolerance. How do we do that? By together experiencing stress. We will all experience adversity. We have all experienced adversity. Many of us manage to get through that why? Because we have the relationships around us. And as a result of that, that the endocrine system, the hormones and chemicals released in their body are significant buffers to the toxic stress that Laura mentioned. It's the relational support. Bring the two together, please, Sharon. 
Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So there is no more effective neurobiological intervention than a safe relationship. And the relationship works to bring the brain back into regulation. So for me, it's really reflecting on how do we absolutely put the well-being of everyone at the heart of our systems, as it were, and underpinned in terms of doing that. Let's not sit with the vulnerability, but with the courage that this is the right thing to do. And we have the evidence to prove it. Thank you, Barry. Sorry if I've gone over by a few moments. No, that's that's absolutely fine. And thank you as ever for that passionate uh, presentation. Um, I th- I'm thinking Bessel van der Klok should be sending us royalties, the amount of promotion that we've given him already today. Um, and I liked one of your phrases there, Sharon. It, it's the... Uh, it's the you know the weather that affects our, our mood or the weather, and I, I remember Ruby Wax's quote: uh, "How is the weather in your head uh, to know how, how we are each day?" So thank you, and the again the the, the synergy between the presentations already is very powerful. Um, I'm now going to move over to Dr. Tina Ray, um, and many of you will again know Tina. She contributed to one of the earlier podcasts, but you'll know her too from the. Her prolific amount of publication Tina has done. She's almost been a lifeline for so many people during this pandemic period. Um, her coffee chats and uh, the 15-minute podcast it's produced, I know, have really enriched practice uh, extensively. So, Tina, welcome to our conference today, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you, Barry. Um, I think what I'm going to say is clearly going to resonate very, very um, significantly in terms of what the other participants have um, talked about so far. My focus today is thinking about your own well-being, your own mental well-being, because I think without that and without that being protected, we are a really putting ourselves at great risk of not being able to do what Sharon has just said we need to do, which is co-regulate with our children and young people. I'm reinforcing this message that without that regulation that we have ourselves, without knowing how to self-regulate our own nervous systems, we are unable, in my view, to support and effectively help children who are also dysregulated. The context that we're currently in, as Barry said in his intro today, is really quite traumatic from my perspective, and I think many of us will share this view. The NSA UWT Union reported in April of this year that there were 4,700 teachers who'd self-harmed during this pandemic, and one in four of them had access to clinical psychological support. And I think that Whatever is going on at the moment in terms of the new Delta variant, the way in which schools are going to function from September in terms of testing their children, etc., whether or not we still have bubbles, we are still in the middle of this pandemic, as Barry said. So ongoing, we are still experiencing heightened levels of trauma, and that will not just impact on our children. It's impacting on us as the people who are there ostensibly to nurture and protect and teach them. So we are under pressure as a workforce, I feel, and we need to actually ensure that our own well-being, our own sense of well-being, mental well-being, and our sense of safety in school is nurtured. And really, um, collectively, in order to survive this, we need to come together in order to ensure that we can do that effectively. And underpinning this has got to be a level of self-care. 
And for, for many of us, we will talk about self-care and people kind of think, oh, God, that's quite a cheesy concept in essence. And I know that it has some negative connotations because of, of the way it's presented in many forums. But from my perspective, there is nothing that we need to um, disregard to regard as cheesy here. Mental health has to be our focus now if we're going to maintain a healthy, productive and regulated workforce in our schools. This is in, inextricably linked, in my view, to looking after yourself and your team first an essential thing that we need to be really thinking about at this current time. Therefore, what I'm going to do today is, is in essence, quite simple. I'm going to share with you my Find Your Calm plan, because I do think that, um, for example, initial teacher training, I wonder how many of our new teachers actually get access to this kind of support, how to look after yourself, your own mental well-being as you go into this profession. And my goodness me, I think our younger teachers need this more than ever now, as do all our practitioners who are supporting our children, and young people. So I'm going to talk through this um, plan that I developed last year as a result of the pandemic, thinking about my colleagues who were experiencing heightened levels of stress and anxiety. So finding our calm daily is something that we really need to think about at this current time. What we can do at the outset, in my view, is focus on what we can control to reduce our anxiety. There is so much out there at the moment that we obviously clearly can't control. So it's about actually narrowing our focus. We feel more in control and more autonomous. If we, if we can gain that sense of more control, we will reduce our levels of anxiety. I can control my relationships, my emotional responses, my thinking. I can learn how to cognitively reframe. I can also learn how to actually focus on what I can do to keep myself and others safe, the social distancing. I can build compassionate relationships. I can control all of that. I can't control the media. I can't control this virus to, to a great extent and the way it's going to mutate in the future. So I think that's really, really important at the outset. I also think we can a lot more to look after ourselves if we really take a, a kind of positive psychological perspective here. So using tools and positive psychology, again, it might sound a, bit, a wee bit cheesy, but I do this with the children. Whatever we're doing with them in order to help them self-regulate, reflect back, are you doing this for yourself? Reflecting on three positives at the end of each day, revisiting, revisiting them at the start of the next day can be really, really helpful and useful because I'm going to bed, I'm going to sleep thinking about the good as opposed to worrying about the bad, the negative. It's a simple strategy, but it can be very useful. We can also, all of us, learn how to neutralise some of those negative thoughts and feelings, those the kind of whole cycle of thinking, feeling and behaving, by reframing them into something that's more effective. It's not as simple as changing a negative to a positive, but it doesn't work like that. This is about actually learning how to challenge ineffective thinking and recognising that our thoughts are not necessarily true. They're not necessarily facts. So we need to learn ourselves how to challenge our negative thoughts if we're going to model that effectively to our children and young people and if we're going to keep our mental well-being intact. I also think very strongly that all of us need to develop a self-care plan and I think the best way to do that is actually write it down, make a record of this so that it's physical, it's tangible. You can look at it, you can tick off the things that you're doing on a daily basis and you can reflect on them and revisit them. Did it work? Didn't it work? 
This is really important and it's important that we get into our heads that this is not selfish. Self-care actually is the opposite of selfish. We can't pour from an empty vessel. If I'm engaging in a level of self-care on a daily basis, that's actually an unselfish act because I'm ensuring then that I'm fit for purpose, that I still have the energy and compassion to give to others. So attending to ourselves first, looking at our own needs is vital. We can then share with our children, our young people, Again, reinforcing the messages today from Sharon and Laura, we cannot regulate others if we are unregulated ourselves. The neuroscience makes this evidently clear. Our window of tolerance needs to be protected and increased before we can help others. A simple way of actually just regulating that all of us can make use of is to observe our breathing. All of us, when we're anxious, our breathing tends to come from the top of our chest as opposed to our diaphragms. And that can really um, feel quite shallow and quite tight. Just put your hand on your heart and pause for a minute. Just stop and take time to calm. We ask our children to do this. We teach them to do this. We need to be doing it too. I also think it's vital, the you in my plan, understanding that it's normal to feel anxious. Let's normalize this. Let's not pathologize normal responses to adverse experiences. Okay, what we need to do is recognize that, validate that, normalize it, and also try to support each other to remain hopeful that this too will pass. We will get there. There is light at the end of this long tunnel. We will need to be more flexible and adaptable. We will need to get used to living with this virus in ways that are more helpful to us. So regulating regularly on a daily basis is key here from my perspective. You might use grounding techniques, best breathing, mindfulness or physical exercise to soothe your nervous system. Practice really does make better make make it better here. It's really, really important to remember that. Even something like drinking additional five glasses of water a day can soothe your nervous system. We need to know how to do it, but we need to be practicing this in order to model this to our children and young people. I want to co-regulate. I want to see adults co-regulating with our children. You do not need to be a therapist to do this. You just need to be therapeutically aware. You need to be trauma-informed. You need to have a bit of knowledge and understanding, as Sharon said, about the neuroscience. So actually investigating that yourself, really, really important to share your calm. That means also that you have to accept yourself in the moment. You've got to have some self-compassion here. We've got to be kinder to ourselves. We've all been through an awful lot this year. Many of us have lost loved ones. I've personally lost three people close to me in my family through COVID. It's really important. We don't always get it right. We can get overwhelmed. Let's just take some time out to vent. Let's take some time out for ourselves to process those strong emotions. Really important that we are kinder to ourselves and accept ourselves in the moment. We also, I think, in order to ensure our mental well-being, need to actually look and learn from what happens. We make mistakes. Let's not beat ourselves up about this, okay? We're not perfect. Let's try and be more solution-focused. Look for those nuggets of the things that did work well. Let's get better at the problem-solving on a daily basis, being more solution-focused. So in my view, there are three C's here, what I call three C's. There are challenges. There is a challenge to us all to keep ourselves well. 
and to make that a, a primary focus. There's also a challenge in our school communities that we keep each other well, that we don't stigmatise or demonise those who find it harder, because this is, as Barry said, on a continuum. Those of us who had mental health difficulties prior to this pandemic, these will have been significantly exacerbated. Those of us who didn't, who felt that we were okay and relatively resilient, will also have been affected to some extent. So maintaining a sense of community, building positive supportive relationships, those connections is essential. We also need to think about how we therefore nurture our empathic brain. I always refer to this, our empathic brain. How do we do it? Remembering that we can only teach, parent or support when we ourselves are regulated. It's a key message, I think, that's emanating from today's conference. So just draw out this, this quadrant for yourselves as, a, as a, you know, a matter of kind of you know, follow-up maybe from this wee bit of the presentation. What are you doing physically to look after yourselves? How are you supporting your intellectual needs in terms of learning how to cognitively reframe, challenging your thinking? What support have you got in place? Who is it around you that is helping you to regulate, listening to your concerns, helping you to process the problems and the anxieties, the fears you might have? How are you keeping in touch with how you are feeling at this current time and expressing those feelings? We need to be really thinking about how we keep all of us, all of us well at a whole school level. So creating relational safety, ensuring that there's a sense of calm, people feel a level of self-efficiency, autonomy, that they're connected because this results in a sense of hope. But this is not cheesy and this is also not, and it mustn't be tokenism. I do not want to be asked to go and do something like yoga on a Thursday afternoon after school as a group self-care process. That doesn't work for everybody, it's inappropriate. What are you doing at whole school level right now in order to ensure the well-being of the whole staff team. I think this is important, the systems, what are the systems for this? We need to focus on what we can control. We need to tell stories about our strengths and revisit those, remaining solution-focused, strength-based, but ensuring that we connect as a community. I'm very passionate about creating collective self-care space for our staff teams now. So this can be 10, 20 minutes, a briefing in the morning where we share skills, strengths and ideas and only focus on what is positive for that moment in time. This creates a powerful ethos going forward so that we can hopefully succeed in getting through what will be, again, another difficult time in this autumn. And I think it's really, really important we reflect on that. These systems need to be embedded into our well-being approach. We take two minutes, Tina, please. Thank you. So going with grit, in essence, is what I'm talking about, being brave and keeping going. So what are your systems? Some of us will need therapeutic interventions, some will not. But there needs to be an element of training that is bespoke, which really increases in-house capacity. And I think this is important, focusing on nurture, safety, compassion and recovery first, as Barry has said, for the whole of this pandemic is an absolute essential. But so is shifting the narrative and remaining hopeful for our children and young people. Let's just flip script here. OK, I think this is really important, too. 
we mustn't please just label this as the COVID lost generation. I don't want our children to be growing up for the rest of their lives living with that narrative around them. Let's just get, get real about this. They are resilient, compassionate, flexible, adaptable. Look at how brave they've been. Look at how they've kept going. Some of them have been very damaged, but the majority have kept going. And I have so much respect for that. This is not the lost generational workforce. So let's not marinate our children or ourselves in in anxiety let's really build on that flexibility on that compassion so thank you for listening thank you for delivering tina uh, and i think the complementarity and yet also the synergy with the previous contributions was huge there and, and you did just what we wanted we asked tina colleagues to to really focus on focus on staff well-being we we are concerned about you not just our children's learners they will have no quality learning unless you are there and you are strong. And what Tina's given you there uh, is something for you and about you and complements the contributions that Laura and Sharon made for us earlier, but has extended those themes. So um, thank you to all three keynote speakers. Um, we couldn't have had better. Uh, somebody's just texted me, this is pure gold dust. Uh, and they haven't wanted, I've had to curtail you all, but you know, they, you've had very short slots and, uh, and, and it's just been so powerful. What I want to say now to each of the other uh, contributors is I'm going to keep you very strictly to 10 minutes. Um, and, uh, we will, for everybody's understanding, we aim at the moment to be finishing the conference at 12.15 today. So we will be running over the original published time, but I hope you appreciate that this is powerful stuff and is very needed at this point in time. So I'm going to go on now to Tom Thatcher from St. Hugh's Special School. Uh, and as I said, Tom's school was one of the DFE pilots for the Relationships, Health and Sex Education, uh, SEND strand. Uh, and we've asked Tom to share with you some of those insights that will form the basis of the statutory framework coming into being in this coming September. Tom, you have till 11.30. Thank you. Okay. So, um, good morning, everybody. Um, I am Tom Thatcher. I am the PSHE lead at St. Hughes. And a couple of years ago, we were part of the RMHSE Curriculum Framework Pilot. And today I'll be talking through our process and the what we went through for the pilot, as well as highlighting any pertinent elements that, are, that I feel are uh, relevant to the SEND community as a whole. And I'm sure from uh, you'll be able to identify some elements and aspects from uh, my presentation that are relevant to the keynote speaker's presentation that already happened. Um, so where did we start? On receiving the framework, our first step was to examine our current provision. And we're very fortunate that we were already teaching RSE at this point. Um, so looking through the framework, we identified um, the elements we didn't have, any gaps within the framework. Uh, and then we looked at the curriculum as a whole and identified other subjects where the framework would fit in. Um, ICT, computing, along with science and PE were uh, the subjects that shared the most um, commonalities with the framework. But also, as has been discussed, the importance of relationships with our young people fits into every subject across the curriculum. So as a school, we sat down and we looked at where um, we can include that within our MTPs, within the delivery, 
of the lessons to support the relationship building. And currently within the pandemic, that's even more important than ever. We then looked at the needs of our students. Um, and from that, we used our staff, the current staff knowledge. We did a staff audit to identify um, their needs. We also used the data from Public Health England to look at the regional um, health needs as well as sexual issues. And now what we've done for our ROC curriculum is look at the mental health issues that our young people need to be educated about in order to support their own well-being. Once we've done that, we then looked at the SHE Association guidance, and that's been updated since we carried out the pilot. But we looked at the strands that the um, PSAT Association suggested. And along with our own curriculum, we created strands for Key Stage 3, Key Stage 4, and Key Stage 5, um, alongside the preparing for adulthood outcomes to create those strands. And from that, we then created a spiral curriculum for each strand. And that was then catering for the needs within our school. And we've got students who have cognitive ability in that range from nine months of age all the way up to GTSE. Um, so to cater for quite a wide range of needs with the young people um, in our set. So how can all of that help us? Well, within the framework, it states that we are able to tailor the content and the teaching from the framework to meet the needs of our young people. And that is essential. That's going to be at the very heart of what we do. So the elements from the framework and from the pilot and the research that we carried out, safeguarding. We all have a duty, um, a duty of care, whereas practitioners, parents and carers, whatever setting we would work in, or whatever our role may be, safeguard our young people. Young people with SEND are extremely vulnerable and we need to give them the knowledge of, for example, what a good, bad or confusing put may be, as well as knowing what a negative relationship may be like in order to help them from abuse, exploitation, coercion. And some of our young people may have never been told or shown what a positive relationship would be like or what is appropriate touch and what what is allowed and it's only through our role and that responsibility for safeguarding our young people by showing them that we can then give them the knowledge that they need um next would be going moving on to sexual relationships and it's really important and that we don't hide away from the fact that our young people will not all but a lot of our young people will be sexually active when they're older and as they grow up. And it's our responsibility to equip them with the knowledge of how to keep themselves safe rather than hiding away from it. That then leads on to consent. And that's not only to understand what consent is within a sexual relationship, also how it can be shown um, and how they can understand if another person provides consent. And that may well be verbally, but a challenge we would have within um, the young people in the SEND community is also how they can communicate consent or communicate no. And that may well be verbally, but for our young people who are non-verbal, um, whether that's with a facial expression, body language, using electronic aid um, in order to support communication, that's a challenge that is essential as practitioners and our role 
to ensure that our young people have that ability to communicate no if necessary. Also, we then come on to puberty. Young people, every young person will go through puberty and we need to make them aware and give them the knowledge of the changes that will happen to them, which in turn will then help them to begin to understand some of the emotions that they will feel and how they may change and how we can help them to regulate their own emotions. And all of that contributes with the theme of this presentation to support the well-being and it all contributes um, towards promoting their own well-being. And in a world where being able to access information that's misleading very easily, um, we have that responsibility as practitioners to provide them with the right information. Now, something at St. Hugh's we are incredibly passionate about is a young person's physical, cognitive and emotional age. And this is so often overlooked, um, I think, within education. So if we took an example student who was physically 14, cognitively had the ability of an eight-year-old, but emotionally, and that might have been due to an ACE, um, Karen and Laura spoke about earlier, or an emotional trauma, that's emotionally there too. That's quite a wide range in um, ages that we then need to teach and we've got to tailor our teaching for. So if we were trying to teach them about puberty, for example, and it's likely that at the age of 14, they would be going through it. We need to think about the vocabulary, the resources we're using, because if they're emotionally incredibly young, and in this case, the example I gave was we've got to consider, are they ready for that teaching? And also the language we use and maybe the resources, those visual support, which is essential for our young people. We've got to make that appropriate keep the language to a minimum. And that's, a, that's an aspect across all teaching we've got to do. And I think from what's been spoken about previously by our keynote speakers, that within this recovery from the pandemic, when, that, when the pandemic eventually ends, comes under control, we've got to think about their emotional development and that emotional age in everything that we then deliver. So that's one of the most important things is their physical age, their cognitive age, and their emotional age to take that into consideration to then be able to deliver effective teaching and support the well-being of young people, which then can help rebuild the relationships that have been damaged throughout this pandemic. So um, I've been Tom Thatcher. If there's any questions that anybody has, please feel free to put them in the comments now, or and I'll be happy to answer. My email address is there. We've also been part of the RHSE training materials pilot. So if you need any information regarding that or any resources, um, please don't hesitate to contact me. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you, Tom. Thank you so much. Just those insights from that first-hand experience, I think will have given colleagues a lot of confidence. So thank you very much. And thank you for being with us, Tom. And I hope that you will continue to be part of this Learning Shared community for all of the uh, benefits that it can bring to each other. So thank you. Um, as you can see, colleagues, this offers a platform to so much rich information. Uh, and I'm going to move on now to our next presenter, who's Alex Tompkins from Greenside School. Uh, Alex also coordinates the uh, SEMH uh, focus group 
for uh, EFL. Uh, and so uh, Alex has got lots of insights to share with us. So over to you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Um, I've got a short presentation today. I'm going to be really focusing on how we can use the evidence for learning tool with mental well-being. And um, and believer that the evidence for learning assessment tool can be more than just assessment. It can be around an important tool for teacher learning and important for understanding a child. So my short little presentation is going to be focusing on that reflecting element and offering an idea um, of a way of kind of um, helping you really. So my little background, um, I work at a SLD focus, so it's a severe learning difficulty. We have quite a large cohort, but also it's interesting uh, based on what Tina Ray was saying, we have a large teaching staff. So we have just as, what feels to be just as many teaching staff as learners. And when you think about assessment, it's important to know your staff that is going to be doing all the interventions and the work with the young people that you're developing. Um, we've been using evidence of learning for around six years. Um, we've developed its use over time. It was brought into the school um, because we have a number of classes that have real complex autism as a fundamental need. And when you went into the class and we were a little bit worried about Ofsted turning up, actually learning was hard to see. You could turn up and you could turn up five times in the day and you could see the same child self-regulating on the trampoline. And we were really concerned that actually our assessment systems wasn't really capturing um, the progress that the teachers were describing when we spoke to them. And we were really concerned that someone who did an observation or a learning walk might come in there and go, well, it just looks like they're just all bouncing on trampolines, basically, on swings. So the evidence of learning was really great because we were able to capture that evidence of, of moments of learning. And as anyone that knows who work with complex autism or um, those that presented SLD, that actually it's very difficult to predict when these moments will be. And they can be across the whole day. And the great thing about evidence for learning or any of those online platforms is if you tool up and empower your staff, they're able to capture at any time during the day and you can have a real portfolio. We've developed its use in stages. And I've spoken to quite a lot of different schools about evidence for learning. It can feel, if you're just starting out with the app, um, it can feel quite, oh, it's huge. And the danger is you go straight in and you offer everything open. And actually the impact might be quite hard. Um, we started off in year one just focusing on teachers and then we looked at TAs and sharing with parents and we evolved it. So it's very important to evolve it. And my mental well-being that I'm going to go and talk into the moment has my most complex learners in mind, more SLD, more those in complex autism. And that's where the development of this project idea um, stemmed from. But I wanted to talk a little bit about um, using the app to help with this. And those many schools who use evidence for learning use tags. And I think it's a hidden gem within evidence for learning because it's such a simple idea, but it can open up, um, you know, real possibilities of how you can promote and develop certain areas. A few tips there on the screen, uh, but it's important to think about whenever you're developing anything with assessment to think of three areas and that's workload, capacity and focus. Workload is important because assessment has a danger that this mental well-being idea or umbrella that's come in and we've got this new focus on recovery that you're going to add on another expectation onto your staff team. And you need to be aware and it's probably important to have some thinking around assessment theory. 
you know, test theory and the idea. If you look at how GCSEs are, are made in some respects, you have to construct everything you teach. And actually the GCSE only takes out segments, traits from it that are assessed. And I think it's important when we're developing assessment systems in the school that we do the same. We're not focusing on everything with such um, intense, you know, literacy is a fine one. Most schools really focus on the minute detail of progress. If you did that on every subject area and then add mental well-being, impact potentially on teacher learning is probably going to be less. Think about the capacity. Think about your staff team. I said we have 130 staff. I want my TAs and anyone working with a young person to understand the child. If they have many targets around literacy, maths, PSHE and mental well-being, it could be a bit too much. And also think about focus in your school. If you want mental well-being to be a focus, um, you've got to give it time. Focus is time. If you're going to give time to this, in, to this focus, then it will have an impact. If it's just in a bolt on of all the others, don't be surprised that it won't have the impact. So why use tags with mental well-being? Mental well-being, as we've heard from all our speakers today, is a very complex area. It's, it's, you, no one really knows whether the impact of an intervention really helps someone. A, a term that's often used in schools is resilience. But resilience is a very com, uh, complex area. I think people band it around and they use it a lot in their policies. But it's very, it's, if you look at the research, it's very difficult to see, you know, I think the understanding is that it's both uh, how a person copes with a contextual problem and how you cope interpersonal with a situation. But often the intervention you have, you might not see the impact for years. And I think that's even more so with our more complex children. I think there's a lot of research to show that someone who has very complex sin is more likely to have mental health problems in the future. But it's also very difficult to know what to work on because you can't necessarily teach in the normal sense um, you know, things to help them into the future. We need to think a little bit more about it. And a strength-based approach, focusing on strengths around the person, a bit more of a culture of mental well-being, could have the impact. You know, you can kind of compare it to, if you look at the engagement profile, it's a culture. It's a, you know, focusing on everything around the person to promote that engagement. I think mental well-being with our complex cohort has the same. Also, it's not deficit-based. And the power of the evidence of learning app is, of course, the use of parents. So today, in this short presentation, I'm just offering an opportunity, really. So the project has developed four tags. And the reason why they're quite simplified is because, actually, when you delve into them, and if you want to have a look at my previous podcast that was recorded this time last year that goes into a bit of detail on these tags, no one disagrees that these things aren't worth focusing on. Um, but sometimes they get forgotten. Having fun is not what assessment's about. You know, anyone that plays around with assessment agrees that you might not appear fun if you ask the teachers on the shop floor. But no one will um, argue that these things are important. And the idea around it is actually to develop these tags, these occurrences as young people. And if they have these positive moments, positive experience, then there's this idea that they're um, having a kind of an emotional security compared to them in life. The opportunity of this project is not around the tags itself, but it's actually changing your ideas around using the app to be more reflective. So the future. So we started the project just before COVID, but it had to be halted um, because of COVID and stuff. And we want other schools to be involved in the project. So those tags there were around kind of 
I want schools who are interested in being able to, to explore their use of tags in their school. You could have had evidence for learning for a number of years. You may have only just started on that journey. But the power of tags is quite there. What we offer is not necessarily an in-depth view of mental well-being, although we do believe that is important. It's around developing a system of reflection around tags, developing an inquiry-based approach. And then also for a number of schools, it would be that collective voice to talk through mental well-being, particularly with children with complex sen that we have in the school, that some of these ideas like Thrive, etc., or Boxall don't necessarily fit exactly with because it's very difficult to necessarily teach them in that way because they might be more sensory learners. And also working with evidence for learners to develop moderation approaches because actually moderation is important. And now we have the wonders of Zoom and stuff. I think that's something that we can explore a bit more. So it's just really to finish um, an opportunity to ask anyone that's listening or watching who would like to be involved in this sort of study area of mental well-being, look at a strength-based approach around it, focus on developing a culture in the school of um, promoting, you know, a happy, creative, um, it all stems that teacher learning curriculum. And I think those, those tasks can really do that. If you're interested please um, drop me an email. If you'd like some more detail about this area, if you look at my podcast that's on the screen, there's loads and it goes into a lot more detail on the research based upon it. And you might want to research a little bit into it yourself. And it's very interesting, particularly the feeling proud element is an interesting concept when it comes mm -hmm. to mental resilience. But thank you for listening. Thank you, Alex. And uh, you, you've made some wonderful links there to show how the app, can really take us to that difficult uh, assessment and monitoring and, uh, and look into our students closely. And those tags are, are very powerful. I know other schools using them uh, as part of your project group and they, they speak very well of them. Um, and also your own podcast. And again, I would recommend to people that they have a look at that. You In the podcast series, and I'm, I'm glad Alex has sort of threaded it back, you, you've got this constant theme of of emotional well-being, of, of mental well-being coming through uh, as a key message. And, and that is the message we need so badly because without getting that right, we will have no efficient and effective learners in our schools and our children will be so disenfranchised, really. So thank you very much, uh, Alex, for this today, but also for the work you've been doing on behalf of the SL, SEND community. Uh, I'm going to go over now to uh, Jonah, uh, who's going to share with us some of the work from Bridge College. Well done. We're on time more or less at the moment, so you have till just after uh, 10 to 12, Joan. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Joan. I'm the Assistant uh, Principal at Bridge. Um, I'm just going to talk through today a little bit of um, work and a project we've been involved with this year and how Evidence for Learning's work with that and how it supported our, our staff team and the students with their mental well-being during a really difficult year. So, um, Bridge we are a specialist independent college in Manchester. So we're dealing with learners that are older. So we've got 16 to 25 year olds. We've got a variety of needs, quite a small cohort of around 80. Um, a larger staff team though, because most of the learners are supported one-to-one. -one, so we were, we've been aware this year of what we've had to do with them as well. Um, we've got a variety of needs ranging from PMLD. We've got really high level sort of ASC learners, but a, a lot, uh, what we do is around supporting the learners with their health. 
their mental health and, and how we do that is a major part of it. So we have a bespoke curriculum that looks at preparation for adulthood and supporting learners with their next step um, of what they want to achieve. They can be with us for a short time, uh, some are part-time, but many do around three years with us. Um, and our curriculum is completely bespoke and it's based on the areas of independence, employment, health and community inclusion. And the idea of sort of how we support learners in a variety of ways runs through that. Um, on top of this, we have a, a MDT team and we have a therapy team and we embed therapy into that curriculum. But we also have sort of interventions that might come in in, in specific ways we support learners with individual need. Um, and the therapists have a key part to play with how we deliver the curriculum in college. So um, this year, we were really lucky to be involved with um, a project with the Association of Colleges um, and they've received funding from the NHS to look at how we could improve mental health and education with a, with a specific look at, at different colleges in the Northwest. Um, so we work with other providers, so um, St. John Rugby, Hotwood College and, and Bolton were involved with us in the network. Um, they were mostly mainstream provisions, so we were specialists, so we were slightly different. Um, but we were, it was a really valuable project to take part of, particularly with this year, you can imagine the challenges that we faced. Um, we're at the start of this journey and many of the other colleges have been doing this for a bit longer, but it was a useful forum to be placed in and I'm going to talk around what we've sort of taken from that, how we've used it and, and how our approach differed from the other mainstream colleges. So, as I said, we've only just started this, um, but we had this sort of aim of looking at becoming this trauma-informed provision. Um, and we met um, every month those mainstream colleges to look at what they'd done, how they were doing it, what they'd done to support their learners. We had our needs were often different and we wanted to inform everything we did in our student needs. And we were already doing certain things with our therapy team and the way that we were working on it. So we, we kept meeting each, each month to form this intent. And it was clear that the way we were going to do this was going to be slightly different to mainstream provisions. But there was going to be similarities with what we did. And we found it really valuable to have that moderation group, have that way that we could support each other, have the chance to meet up and discuss what this meant for our provisions and how we could do it and what we could do together. Um, we were able to share sort of guidance that we produced um, and we, we shared our policies and the things that we had in mind. Um, I think they gained a lot from us as well in the way that we work with our therapy team. We have a really dedicated PBS team. It's a real individual approach. We have um, an OT team and the way that they work um, with learners was really valuable for them to look at that. But we got a lot as well out of them and it was able to shape what we did. And we also got the funding that we could use in a way that we could change that from how they were using their funding. So we looked at a specific way we could use it and we decided that we would go for some consultancy from the psychology group because we have worked with psychologists before but we thought it'd be nice to get some external input on what we were doing and look at it and look at how we could support learners following the pandemic and the staff team and we also thought the main thing we needed was support with that implementation with our staff team so we went with a group called beyond psychology um, so in terms of what this meant for implementation, we worked with this team. Um, we had a real focus on what had happened during the pandemic. And we were really keen with the things that Tina had talked about to support our staff team. So as a leadership team, we thought our staff team had been through so much this year. And I think what was key in what she said is the way that they are working to regulate really complex learners. We knew that they wouldn't be able to do this effectively unless we supported them and made sure that they had a way of, of supporting themselves as well, or, or that we were supporting them as a workplace. So um, we've got the training for all staff 
uh, one of the training courses we had was the four Ds, which was around dealing with distress. And it was only a short course to support the staff team, but it was to support them in the workplace with distress that they faced this year, to provide them with some strategies to help them. Um, and we found that a really useful experience to go through this year. And it was something that we hadn't done previously. But we also reviewed sort of uh, the way we were supporting our staff team following the pandemic um, and during the pandemic. So were there ways that we could better support them? Were there ways that they could share their experience with them? And we looked at the way we were doing that. And we worked with Beyond Psychology to, to implement that in the college. And we found it was such a useful thing to do this year. And it, it was working for our learners to give that, but it was something that we could look at with the staff team. And we found it really useful. On top of that, we, they also delivered training to all staff in the building on adverse childhood experiences on attachment and development and trauma training that we gave. And these training courses were really useful and supported the staff team to really, although we have clear guidelines and we have bespoke things that help them to get a bit more understanding of the theory. And it, it just gave them that little bit more understanding of what was happening. And it wasn't just coming from our in-house therapy experts. It was, it was something else in the psychology team. And we found that really useful. Um, we also worked with this team and targeted our specific groups across the college. So we worked with the governors because we thought it was really important for them to understand the vision of the college and what we were going for. They worked with, with us, with the SLT team. They worked with our human resources team because we thought it was important for them to, to, to understand how we're supporting the staff team across the college and, understand, um, and what it meant to work with these really complex learners. Um, and they worked with our middle management team as well to, so that we had a clear vision of what we wanted across the college and to support the staff team but as well the learners. Um, but all that we did we, we always considered student need as we as we always do but we also had the specific training that went to certain teams around certain groups in the college. Um, our cohort has evolved over the years and we're seeing learners that are coming in with needs that we've, we've never seen before and our assessment processes are, are so good we can look at that and we need to find new ways of working with them so it was interesting to have the chance to put in specific training in place for different teams and then pull that out across the division. We have a supported internship course with higher functioning learners that want to work into the world of work, but they have really complex um, mental health that we needed to look at ways of working with them. And we, we delivered specific training for those groups that work with them. So um, all that training that we've put in place and all the, the new changes and tweaks, the guidelines and things that we've done, we, we wanted to see uh, the effect that this has had, and this is where evidence for learning is such a powerful tool. We've used it for six to seven years in the college, um, and we know what it can do, but we had a particular focus this year on using it to produce these clear case studies to actually show the impact of the projects. So the specific change we made and the support we put in place for learners and the staff team, how can we show that this has actually had an impact? And we, we use evidence for learning across the college, but we were able to see for our assessment of it, so we use insights and the assessment showed that we are making improvements in the certain way the learners target in the area of health and the things that we put in place with the curriculum we were showing that we had achievement. But also it, it was what we were asking the question, what is achievement in this time for our recovery curriculum and for the learners that are coming back into the college? So we looked at that, we produced these case studies, never explained as great at that because we were able to see the actual impacts in the building, we were able to look at it we could produce these quick case studies. And, and also it was, the thing for the team was it was brilliant for them to share what they had done and that idea of we were supported and this is what we delivered. And we can show that to others in the building was, was an amazing experience for them, but they could actually see the impact they'd had with their learners. And 
I think that is why they come in every day. So it's a, it's a brilliant thing. And all the things we put, uh, all the training we put in place, it doesn't really mean anything unless it impacts individuals in the building. And the brilliance of Evans Glen is we can share those case studies and we can do it. Uh, also this year, we volunteered to be part of a pilot inspection with Austin because they wanted to test how the common inspection framework works during a pandemic. Um, and we wouldn't have done this unless we knew that our staff team were going to be okay with this because if you think of the idea of forming a traumatic event, for many people in education, that's their coming in can be quite traumatic and it can be quite a hard thing to deal with. So we voluntary, we volunteered them to come in and we, we needed to know that our staff team could cope with this is another thing on top of it. But we knew that the things we put in place there were going well as a senior leadership team. Everyone was working for their best abilities and we knew that we were at this really good place where we provided strong home learning. We knew that the, the things that we put in place were working partly down to the case study of social evidence for learning. We could see it, we could see these things. We knew it as a as a leadership team anyway that everyone was happy and it was working. So we volunteered for this and then Part of what they looked at was the actual impact of, of the things that we've done. And there was a key focus, obviously, on the things that happened during the pandemic and how learners have been um, supported. And again, Evidence for Learning helps us clearly show those case studies and the things that have been put in place and share that with the Austin inspectors. The way that inspection occurred, again, was slightly different. Um, I think we've been through the inspection with the new common inspection framework, but they were more mindful of going into spaces because we were some learners some rooms had capacities and we didn't want people to mix. So the way that they were they delivering that inspection again was slightly different. It was more talking to people around the building and they often used evidence learning to share their best practice and to share the case studies and where they'd supported learners. But again, the feedback from Ofsted was brilliant and um, they were we were outstanding in all areas. Although this was only a pilot inspection, they they were really pleased to see the way that we had this MBT approach to support learners back into the actual building and how traumatic that would, would be for some of them that had been at home for large periods. We'd have learners that had shielded for over a year and not been out of the community. And they wanted to see how we'd actually manage that because that was a huge thing and, and how that had been done. And we could clearly show that. Um, we had learners as well at that time, they were just starting to go back into work where it was essential. And we could show again that that was a really huge thing for some of our learners to go back into a crowded workplace or back into the community was that they hadn't done it for so long. And we were able to document how we maintained those skills and supported them to again go back out in the into the community. And we were do, we did that through case studies and using evidence for learning and staff talking through the amazing practice and the way that they'd implement the training. And that was a really powerful thing. So this, uh, the project is in its own stage of learning, doing it for a year, but it doesn't stop. And I think we're looking at the next steps already. We're shaping the improvements in the areas of PHSE in the college for this, and we continue to improve our health curriculum. I think we are continually assessing the learners and what's occurring, and we're constantly making changes, but we're, we're using the training and the way that the things that we learn in this project to continue to shape these areas. Um, we've got a big, big, um, plan on our equipment for next year of how we actually continue to improve this community engagement. We've clearly lost some things this year from where there's not been able to go out as much across the curriculum. So we've got a way that we're going to do that. And, and the first thing we need to think about is how are we going to do that with our learners and how are we going to deliver this? So we've got projects in place for that and we're going to be looking really closely at, at the way that 
the um, training that we have and how we do that. We've got projects with other external providers, including Port Second Street Manchester, to look at um, how we're going to work with our LGBT plus parts of the curriculum. And we've got changing cohort again, we've got learners with real specific needs in that area, and we're working with people to help with that. And I think everyone's gone through so much this year that we want to support them. So, as we, we will continue to improve that and be practice with these things. And so I've got a video on this. I'm not going to show it because I think I'm going to run out of time, but I'll send it out with the slide. Yeah. If anybody's got um, any questions on it or want to work with it, I'm always available. But in summary, it's been really useful experience and um, it's really helped to shape the curriculum and support the learners this year. So, Jonah, thank you. You've, you've again given us some... Uh, rich perspectives that complement what others have said, particularly the Ofsted experience. I think that will uh, be helpful to colleagues. But to show how embedded you've made your practice in the Evidence for Learning app and how that has been empowering in terms of student voice, but also in terms of quality practice amongst you as a staff team. So thank you very much for that presentation. Uh, I'm going to move us on now to Jeanette Skull. Jeanette uh, will be known to many of you. She works as deputy head at uh, JFK School. Uh, in London and um, Jeanette it's over to you thank you right um, um, what I'm going to describe really is how we used the evidence for learning indicators to do what we chose to do in the autumn term or term one or two depending on how half terms are described in this day and age um, at JFK School. So I haven't, I've only got four slides um, and I haven't got any pictures of the indicators, but if you use the app, you will be familiar with the indicators and we quickly put together an indicator that we could use. Sounds a bit mysterious, but all will be revealed. Okay. Um, the recovery curriculum is quite an interesting notion, actually, um, and the way it's been um, described, I'm just putting my timer on, but I know I'll be told after 10 minutes, the way it's described also um, is quite puzzling because we have recovery curriculum and what does it mean? Um, we thought about it in terms of two questions. They're both two very similar questions and they both have, well, they're two different questions, but they have the same answer. So... In the summer term last year, I really couldn't help but think, and I think all the school leaders around me couldn't help but think, what is really going on with our school community? Because a school community is a thing that exists in a place where it exists, and, and outside of that as well, but it, it, it's a very defined um, social space. And suddenly we hadn't seen lots of people in our school community for quite a long time, and we really wondered what was going on with them. You know, what is really going on with our school community? And the answer to that is, we don't know. And what we know, we don't know. <laughs> we just don't know. And then the next thing that we were thinking about, really, and I was thinking about this very much, is what will our response be to this in September? And again, we didn't know, but we knew we didn't know. Um, and one of the things that I kind of thought about quite early on was how we're a school where we have um, quite a number of learners who've got very complex needs. We're not different to anybody else. And we just wondered if we might have to relearn our relationship and our connection with our learners. But we went ahead and we, 
we were really puzzling. And the picture of the rock on the front is, is my pondering face. Imagine that little face. I think I probably do have a pondering moustache that I should tape on. Looking out the window, just thinking, what are we going to do with this? It was um, quite something. So what we did was we, well, we listened and we got inspired by others. Um, and I'll come to that in a minute. So based really listening to Barry very carefully in um, the conference last year and Tina Ray as well. Um, we were very inspired by what we heard and it gave us a sense of direction and it gave us a sense of understanding that we could share with other people in the same situation. It was, it was quite, um, that conference was actually pretty amazing. And as I came away from it, I started to have ideas as I have today listening to people. And so we got to the point where we know the, the recovery curriculum it's not a curriculum. It's it's kind of a phenomena, really. You know, it's something that doesn't live in schema and framework. And that's a really difficult thing to explain to teachers, especially teachers in, in England, because we, we have this kind of national curriculum overarching everything. And no matter what our relationship with it is, we still have this understanding of curriculum that, that's unusual sometimes when you look at it from a wider perspective. Um, but we are, and we also knew when we listened, when we went to the conference and, and we heard and we thought about it, that actually, and our trust position as well, I think our trust did very well in, in considering well-being and considering the needs of our families generally, is that we do hold a central position in our communities and we did need to ensure that all our learners reconnected and engaged with learning at any point. Actually, it wasn't after the lockdown period as it happened. It was after, it was right throughout. And we do take this, um, this thing that has come very much from this piece of work around recovery curriculum, and thank you, Barry, and thank you, everybody else involved, that teaching is hugely a relationship-based profession. So all of that really informed what we did next. And what we did was really quite simple. So let me just click on. There we go. We took it that if we think about um, levers and if we think about what's been described to us, that is, let me just go to, I don't know if you know, that processing is terribly well these days at the moment. That is kind of what, why are we doing this? Why are we doing what we're doing? It really is the whys and the wherefores, the overarching, the what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. But then if we want to think about it in a way that we can actually organise it in school and capture some of what we're going to do, um, listening to what Tina brought, actually, there is a why there, but there's a what and a how, and it was there was very much a how. So what we did was really simple. I'm just going to share if I can, um, and just tell me if you can see it. Can you see that? So what we did, it was the simplest thing possible. We said, okay, we're going to base all of this on things that we've heard, started reading, started talking, um, you know, lots of connection. And what we decided to do was really simple. We're just going to. The school will be there. The school's been there for years. We're a school community. We're going to do really simple things. Say your name, greet you, be sociable, do all the things that look familiar to a school day. But what we are not going to do, you can see we've got our rationale there. I'm going to stop there on that bit. What we are not going to do, we are not going to have any targets. We are not going to have any assessment. We are just going to relearn our relationships with each other we're going to be really mindful and we're going to watch you know see how we are in lots of different ways so what we did was we used the indicator settings on evidence for learning 
and with reference to Tina's work, we looked at those three areas of focus, self-regulation for well-being, moving for physical physically and mentally and moving for physically and mentally well-being so it's the type of their connecting for well-being so we took those three and what we said was during this year during this term sorry we're just going to be who we are you know teaching and learning could look quite different at times we had lots of um guidance restrictions risk assessments but we tried to be the school community we were throughout as much as we could possibly do we're just going to use the evidence capture and we're just going to look look for things look for um you know green shoots look for where these things exist and we're just going to say something about them we're just going to relearn what we're doing and then at the end of the first term we had the evidence which was linked to an indicator so we can filter it and pull it up and have a look at it and have a discussion about it and mainly it's just asking questions like what happened to us where are we now? Where were we? Where are we now? What worked? What didn't work? What is working really well? What do we need? Just loads and loads of questions. Um, and then, ironically, we went into the kind of part of life where, and this was something that we did with teachers, just so that because we couldn't cross sites, we just had a little kind of blurb chart so that people could kind of, uh, you know, initially talk about what might appear in um, the various things that we were, we were looking for. Um, because, you know, not everybody knows. And actually, not everybody's come back 100%. Um, oh, sorry, I'm going to screen share and I'm actually looking. Not everybody else comes back 100% totally feeling confident either. Um, so that's what we did. And then at the end of the term, we all got together and we really talked. And then we started looking at working forward. What would a personal learning goal look like? What did we know? We thought we had... Um, got ourselves into a position where we we looked at personal learning goals and then we really learned about what COVID is. We come back in January, nah, we ain't doing that. We're doing something completely different. Um, it's been an interesting year, but I must say having this app has allowed us to be really flexible. Um, and so when we come to evaluate things this year, there, there isn't a number in sight. There isn't a number that can cover this. But what there is, is lots of reflection on what did we see? What might we, how might we go somewhere else with this? What are we looking at? And, and, and what is the next step? There's been a lot of discussion and a lot of kind of what I would say is kind of social engagement with everybody, with what the returning to learning process looks like. So that's it basically in a nutshell. We used our app to create three indicators, we said, don't collect assessments, just go forward on the basis that you're going to watch your learners and relearn your learners. I would say, I think we thought that the young people had come back in and of course they were delighted to see us all because actually it's great to be in a social space, but the fallout is continuing and the fallout is in other aspects. It's really to do with our engagement with the other services and the things that have happened to the families over time due to all the stresses. And, and that is in full swing, even as I as I speak, you know. So it was a very simple response and um, it was very inspired by the conference. It was very inspired by Barry's work and the ability to do something that, that we could learn was, was very much based on Tina's work. And that's, that's it, basically. Thank you, Jeanette. It's always good to see those 
links being made between you know, work that's come before. And, and for me, it's always inspirational to hear about the rollouts in schools. So thank you for those. And again, for showing how Evidence for Learning and the app uh, has empowered that work. So thank you. We're going to come to the final presentation, which is from Alison Wheeler, who is the head teacher up at Palmerston School. I think this will link very well to uh, the earlier presentation that Sharon gave us. Thank you. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, I won't. I won't keep you ten minutes because I'm sure you're all getting a little bit twitchy, um, and tummies are rumbling because it's getting near dinner time. Um, I just want to say that um, my presentation really kind of brings everything together that's gone before me. Um, I'm talking a little bit about how we support mental health in Palmerston School. Um, and that's from a staff point of view, from a pupil point of view, and also from parents and family point of view. Um, I think I'm a firm believer that you can't support a pupil's mental health without supporting the family and also without supporting your staff as well. Um, a little bit of background about Palmerston, we're a um, secondary school for pupils with severe learning difficulties. Um, we're aged 11 to 19. Um, we have students with severe learning difficulties, but also profound and multiple learning difficulties. Um, we're in Liverpool. We're in a, a lovely area of Liverpool called Egbeth. Um, but actually, our pupils come from all over the city, um, including lots of kind of deprivation areas as well. Um, and we also have a number of students coming from out of city. Um, we are 136 on roll. Um, going up to 114 September and numbers are increasing rapidly um, coming out through our ears if I'm honest. Um, so as I said we're just I'm just going to do a little bit of a presentation about what we do um, for mental health and well-being for our families. We, we feel that our families are pivotal um, in the well health and well-being of our pupils. Um, we're really lucky in the fact that we we have an open door policy and parents really really utilize that they phone us regularly, they come in regularly. Um, whilst our risk assessment at the moment due to COVID um, says that we don't have any kind of non-emergency visitors, we just said to families, we class you um, kind of outside of that. If you need to speak to us, you come in and we will always make time um, to talk to you about anything really. It could be kind of relationships outside of the pupils' school life. Um, we do a lot of family fun nights, so we, we have a lot of get-togethers, we do discos, and we have a wonderful pig racing night, which the families really, really enjoy. Um, because our pupils come in on um, city council transport, which means that the parents haven't got that chance to talk to each other in the playground of the morning and when they pick the pupils up of the night. And some parents really do feel quite isolated. When we talk to parents, it's there's a feeling of... Um, isolation of like nobody knows what I'm going through nobody has a son or daughter like mine nobody experiences all the the kind of things that go along with having a pupil with severe learning difficulties when actually most of our parents are experiencing this um but it's the difficulty of getting the families together um, so whilst COVID's going on at the moment obviously we've not been able to do that but we do spend a lot of time getting our families together um, coffee mornings um, we do a lot of training um, but a, a lot of the time it's also just to come and sit and chat have, have some tea have some cake um, and just talk to like I say other kind of families that are in similar situations to you um, our year sevens um, we, we spend a lot of time on transition which also hasn't been able to, to take place this year so we're actually doing a summer school um, for our year sevens coming to us in September um, but at the start of the year we also ask the parents to come in um, they come into the classroom, meet the teachers, meet the support staff. 
um, and just see what it's like to be a learner in Palmerston and what it's like for a year seven child to come into a classroom in the morning and kind of the routines and things that the, the children experience. Um, and they, the parents kind of really, really relate to that then because they can they can understand what we're talking about. Well, pupils come in and it's a communication time. It's, oh, actually, I've, I've seen that. Um, and that's a really valuable part of the day. Um, we have a family liaison officer. Um, she attends all the reviews. She would attend all the e-hats and things like that. Um, but she's also the first port of call. She's she's our named bod um, for families who need to speak to somebody. And again, it could be a housing issue. Um, it could be that they're having trouble filling in the billion page pe um, people premium forms and things like that. It's just it's just a kind of a one person um, for them to be in contact with. Um, in school, we also have lots of drop-in sessions. Um, for, we've got really good links with outside professionals. So people like CAMS, the physio, we have on site three days a week. Um, and we have med medicals in school as well. Again, the family can just touch base with us. If they're in for a medical and they want to speak to the class teacher, we'll always make time to make sure that that class teacher is available for, for the families to talk to. Um, obviously, being in Liverpool, we're a very multi multicultural city. Um, and a lot of our families have um, English as an additional language. And whilst we try our best to get interpreters in for any meetings and things like that, sometimes it's a real struggle, for particularly for the families if they're doing like the family fun nights and things like that. It's sometimes really difficult for those families to engage. Um, so we, we've actually started doing um, very specific um, focused family groups. So we've got quite um, a high proportion of um, families that have come um, from Sudan and things like that, that, that speak Arabic. Um, so we have an Arabic family get together. So it's hosted in school. Um, all our Arabic families can come and we have we have kind of all the, the schools in Liverpool tapping into that as well. So it's not just our school families. Um, and most of all, like I say, it's just being there for our families, which I'm sure most schools do, um, but particularly during the COVID time, because I think it's really difficult and families do feel quite isolated. Um, I was really happy to hear um, Dr. Tina talking about mental and mental health and well-being for staff. Um, we, we really, really pride ourselves on doing a really good job with this. I'm no, no means the experts at all, um, but we get some really positive feedback from staff around this. Um, so much so that we've actually brought in um, a staff wellbeing policy, which you can just see on the screen there. I'm happy to share that with anybody if you want to get in touch with me. Um, but we do things like staff shout out board, which I've actually seen is is actually empty on your screen when I took the when I took this photograph. Um, it's the end of term, um, and I've taken all the post its off. But it's pretty much when staff do something nice for each other. They might see something nice in the corridor. It might be something outside of school. It might have been a telephone call just to check in. Um, then that staff member can write that staff member's name on the board. And at the end of every half term, we take all the names down, we shuffle them all up, put them in a hat. And in assembly, we ask one of the pupils to pick a name out. And that staff member gets um, half a day uh, fully paid. They can do whatever they want. They just take it and they can go shopping or whatever. Um, we do Talent Tuesdays. Our, um, Tuesday afternoon, just Tuesday evening, sorry, are for staff training. But at the end of every term, we do a Talent Tuesday where the SLT run a club. Um, I'm quite sporty, so I do things like a netball club. We might do a running club. We might do a circuit. Um, but one of the other staff, um, she does yoga. So we might have a yoga club. It might just be cooking. Um, another one that we do that's quite popular is just daft um, board games. So there might be things like Scrabble. It might just be um, just Pictionary, something that the staff really, really enjoy, but it's it's just a get together and it's an SLT acknowledgement that actually everything that you've done over the half term is just we're really, really grateful for it. 
Um, we, play, we pay into an employee assistance programme. Um, it works out something like £8 per staff member per year. And it has been one of the best things that we've, we've ever done. Um, a, it acknowledges to staff that they're, they're worth money. They're worth us forking out of our school budget for. Um, but it also means actually when staff come to us and they've got real, real issues or real concerns, um, either themselves or family members, um, and we're not equipped to, to kind of counsel them or, or deal with that emotion at that time, then we can refer them to the Employee Assistance Programme. Um, like I say, it's counselling, um, they have things there for finance support, um, and it's not just the staff member, it, it opens out to wider um, families as well. We do regular wellbeing check-ins with SLT, and we've got a suggestion box in the staff room, uh, we do crunchy and whisper. So if we know that there's a staff member that's particularly anxious or upset about something, we just leave a whisper on the desk saying, I've heard a whisper that you're not feeling too great. This is for you. And kind of just an acknowledgement that we we're aware that they're not feeling too good. Um, and stop, listen and validate. I, I've got a running joke that I'm actually going to get one of the, um, you know, at the deli counters where you take a ticket and then your number comes up and you say, number 23, come on in. Um, my, my door's always, always open to staff. And sometimes you kind of go, they, they come and they say, Alison, can, can I see you for a minute? Are you really busy? Oh, yeah, I'm really busy. But yeah, come on, come on in. Um, and again, it's just that validation for staff to naturally know that you're listening. And it might just be actually you say, look, I've, I haven't got time to support you with this right now. I'll listen to you, but please come back to me when at the end of the day or come back to me or I'll give you a phone call at the end of the day and we can have a, a catch up then. Um, I know probably schools do an awful lot of this, so I'll, I'll kind of run through this really quickly. So mental health and wellbeing for pupils, we do a lot of celebration weeks. We, we have a lot of fun in Palmerston. And I think Alan was here for one of the days when we were doing our, it was Valentine's Day and we were doing a speed dating session. Um, it was bonkers. There was a lot of people. It was loud. It was fun. And it was just, it was Brilliant. not people whatsoever. It was, yeah, it was really, really good. And we pride ourselves on that. We do that pretty much every half term. We have a themed week where it's just, we don't even think about the timetable. It's just about the children having fun. Um, we're introducing in September ready to learn activities at the start of every lesson. Again, acknowledging that some of our pupils come in from all over the city. They could have been on the bus possibly up to an hour. Um, so they're, they're not coming in straight into a lesson and we're expecting them to sit at a table or to sit at the floor and be presented with something that they're going to actually um, be engaged with. Um, so our ready to learn activities are very bespoke, very individualised to the pupil. And that's up to the class teachers to decide what those activities will be. And it might be a whole class session or it might be an individual um, pupil session, depending on kind of the needs and the nature of the pupils. And we do a lot of peer on peer massage and yoga and mindfulness in the curriculum as well. Um, I'm just going to skip past this bit um, because I know that we talked about Thrive and I know that Sharon um, talked about Thrive as well. We are, we are actually a Thrive school. And we've got two Thrive practitioners um, and it's just, it's amazing. It's such, it's made such a positive difference to the staff as well, I have to say. Um, so we have yearly staff training on Thrive, just as a reminder of this is what you should be doing. But it's little things like we always make sure that in the morning there is a staff member on the door for the children coming in off the bus. A, it catches if there's been any issues because the, the escorts will tell us. But it's also that feel-good factor. So it's noticing if students have their hair cut. It's noticing if they've got new shoes on. It's noticing um, if they're sad. And it's kind of, oh, you look really sad today. Do you want to come and see me later and tell me all about it? 
or even just a, I'm going to go and tell the class teacher that something's happened today. So it's that instant, as soon as the pupils are coming off the bus, it's that recognising um, that the haircut or the new glasses or the new coat. And it's that feel good factor the students get um, before they've even entered the school building. Um, we do have a, an action plan, which is here. We do that yearly, which is a Thrive Action Plan about what, what our next steps are. And that does go into the school development plan. And we do use um, assessment for learning. Um, we use tags in assessment for learning to record progress towards Thrive. So I'm just going to do a little bit of a clip. Um, it's actually on the Evidence for Learning website. So please feel free to go and have a look at it. Um, but it just details a little bit more about Thrive in... Oh, no, it doesn't. Sorry, I've just clicked that and it's gone off. I won't go back to it because I do know that time's pressing, but please go and feel free to go and have a look on the Evidence for Learning website about our Thrive in Palmerston and just how it links in really, really well um, with parents, but also in with Evidence for Learning as well. Um, so Evidence for Learning, we, we capture everything. So some of our learners um, can't read and can't write. Um, so it's about capturing that evidence about what they've done. Things like schemes of works and frameworks go on there. And the personal learning goals for each student. This is one, um, as you can see on the top of the presentation here, this is a young man um, who's actually on our Thrive um, as well. And he's actually got a one page profile that actually details his Thrive interventions. Um, we evidence everything through tagging. That's already been mentioned, I know, by, um, by Tom, I think it was. Oh, Alex, sorry. Um, and we send our learning journeys home termly. Parents love to see photographs and pictures that they can share with families they can share with grandparents and it's about that conversation of the student comes home from school the pupil gets uh, the parent get the ipad they can have a look what's been going on during that day and it's to sit down at the dinner table and say wow i can see you've done some really good artwork today that's fantastic um it's about that two-way conversation with with pupils and parents but also with with school as well um, and then also, again, we talked about Thrive and we have class and individual targets. So our Thrive practitioners spend a lot of time in classrooms um, observing the children, observing the staff, because it's sometimes about how staff react to, to certain pupils as well. Um, and then those Thrive targets go on to the, um, the PLG. This is something um, that we've introduced um, again this, this year, but we're, we're really taking forward in September. It's called the Rainbow Award. Um, you can actually find it on Proud Trust website. Um, and it's looking at, um, well, I'll, I'll introduce Julie first of all. Julie's my deputy head and she's introducing the Rainbow Award. So I'll play the video first of all, and then I'll just capture a little bit of what it's about. Hi, I'm Julie Suffield and I'm deputy head teacher at Palmerston School. We've been working on the Rainbow Flag Award since September, 2020. This is a quality national assurance framework which aims to provide positive LGBT plus inclusion and visibility. It's something we're working on with all, within all parts of our school community, not just our pupils, but also their families, our staff members and their families, our governing body and everyone else who's involved in school life. There are six areas that the school work towards as part of the award. The first one is skills teacher, which we've already recently achieved. The next one is supportive parents and supportive governors, which we're working on at the minute. The other four are effective policies, inclusive curriculum, pastoral support, and most importantly, and something which we're going to be working on throughout the whole of the year, pupil voice. Through working towards the Rainbow Flag Award, what we're hoping to do is demonstrate a commitment to improving the lives of all our young people, 
including those who may identify as LGBT+, as well as any families who may identify as LGBT+, and staff members as well. Like I say, we're, we're kind of in the early stages of the, the Rainbow Award, but if anybody wants any more uh, information, either contact me or Julie directly or just have a look at the Proud Trust website. Um, just lastly, to finish, um, I know that sort of schools talk about kind of academic um, work and things like that, but I have to say my proudest moment was our opening statement on our Rosted report, which said pupils love coming to Palmerston School. That means the world to me as a head teacher because it means that they're actually coming in smiling in the morning, which means so much that actually they're, they're ready and they're, they're ready to learn. Um, and then it also talks about how much we value the staff and the pupils and, and the leaders care about well-being and consider workload. So if anybody wants any more information about what we do, like I say, we're, we're not kind of the, the be all and end all. We're not just um, kind of we don't we acknowledge that we still have work to do, but we, we are willing to, to kind of help and support other schools if you if you're interested. So please do feel free to get in touch with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alison. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Yeah, really, really good. So, look, if I can just take the platform just quickly to say a few thank yous. And, and I can speak just firsthand, actually, having stood in the entrance hall at Palmerston, as Alison as said, in the morning, um, seeing the children uh, being welcomed into school. It, it truly is a special nurturing place that's warm and welcoming. It's a fantastic home for learning. So thanks for sharing that with us today, Alison. It really was a privilege to spend that time with you and the team. Well, look, I hope everyone's had a great session. I've certainly found this, um, I've been kind of overwhelmed with the richness of information that's been shared. I'd like to thank all of our speakers and contributors for today. There's been really so much to take away, to ponder and reflect on. And I would urge you to please share the recording and the materials widely, not just within your schools, but across your network, actually. Um, if you'll indulge me a couple of minutes, I'd also like to just thank a couple of people on the Evidence for Learning team, uh, seeing as this is our end of year roundup. I'd like to thank my colleague, co-founder, director and brother, Barry, uh, Barry Wood, who's behind the scenes as we speak, trying to make sure the technology for this webinar is working. Um, and I'd also like to thank everyone on the EFL team for their um, constant efforts and resourcefulness. This has been an extremely challenging year. I think we've all found ourselves working outside of our comfort zones. And I, I know that's the case for everyone that's that's uh, listening and with us today as well. And that really brings me to my last thanks. I'd, I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone that's participated contributed to the EFL Learning Shared Community in any way, whether as a panellist, a presenter, a speaker, or even just as an attendee. At every event, we host breakout rooms, and, and they're wonderful opportunities for colleagues to network and learn from and be inspired by each other. It's, it's by far and away the most favourite part of what I do. I feel truly blessed to be around such inspiring people, so thank you to everybody. I'm, I'm hoping that next year we can go back to face-to-face -face meetings. I think we'll keep Zoom for some meetings mm. because we can record the meetings. It's a great way to be able to participate without having to jump on a bus or a train or your car. Um, but, but you can't be sat around the table with colleagues and starting to thrash out ideas. So we'll keep you posted of more events next year. But in the meantime, I'd, I'd like to wish everybody a, a very safe and restful summer period. We're not quite there yet. I hope I'm not tempting fate. But um, I look forward to working with you all in September. 
And, and I'd like to leave really the last words now to, to Barry. Thank you, Alan. And uh, obviously our thanks have to go to you for, for all the facilitation you've done throughout this, this podcast series. Um, just listening to Alison at the end there, it really brought home that mental well-being is, is so poignant and pertinent to our schools at this point in time not just for the children's learning, which we've heard about extensively today, for the staff well-being too. And Alison, the, the family parent dimension you brought in there was terrific. Uh, in fact, to be truly honest, Alison, you really won me over when you got to the whisper bars. Uh, I actually did want to text you and say, have you got a vacancy? Because that would certainly uh, bring me back into the profession. Um, look, folks, this has just been a fantastic opportunity. For me, this is officially... Uh, the the uh, last event I will do this academic year for um, evidence for learning, and I will actually be starting my retirement. But I'm pleased to say that I'm not actually retiring from evidence for learning. I've decided that's the one thread that I will keep going um, because it's such a fabulous community to be a part of, and I think it will help me in my transition at all phases of my life at the moment. So thank you for being here today, for listening, and do just share this with others. Let them become part of this community as well, because it is a community that values our children, values their learning, but also values you and each and every one of you in all that you do for the work of our children with special educational needs. Go and have that really good rest this summer. Oh boy, do you deserve it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. The homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com and you can email us at learningshared at theteachcloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. We've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and details are on the Learning Shared web pages. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.